and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Nicholas Bagley, Professor of Law at the University of Michigan Law School, and Julian Davis Mortensen, Professor of Law at the University of Michigan Law School. We will discuss their article, Delegation at the Founding, which will be published in the Columbia Law Review. So, Nick, Julian, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. It's great to be here. Thank you for having us on. Yeah, well, and before we even start, I just wanted to congratulate you on all the incredible success this really excellent paper has gotten. I mean, a lot of people are talking about it when it first came out, and it has gotten a surprising number of um, very, um, uh, very energetic responses, shall we say. <laughs> and, I, and I hope we can talk about that phenomenon later in, in the show. Absolutely. Yep, definitely. <laughs> well, so I was wondering, um, for listeners who may not be, you know, so invested in kind of structural constitutional theory, if you could talk a little bit about the kind of underlying concepts that you address in the paper, like specifically, when we talk about delegation, what exactly do we mean? Well, in principle, um, and thank you again for having us on. It's really uh, great to have a chance for this for this conversation. Um, uh, in principle, uh, any governance power can be delegated, right? So, if you think about powers that are possessed by the president, um, he, he or she is not always going to be able, in every instance, to personally implement the authority that's been uh, vested in him or her, uh, whether by the constitution or by some statute. And so there is um, a, a, a tradition or a way of talking about um, uh, uh, handling situations like that, where um, one actor in the government conveys the authority um, temporarily and under, often under some kind of instructions to someone else to implement on his or her behalf. Um, and so in principle, you could talk about delegation of any governance authority. We, of course, are focused on um, the delegation of, and I'll drop a footnote already because we have contested categories here, but the delegation of legislative authority, the delegation of the authority to make rules that govern conduct, both private and public, by Congress to somebody else, um, and either to the president or to, to an executive branch agency. Okay, well, so the paper is really written, as I take it, kind of against the backdrop of this idea of a non-delegation doctrine as a kind of fundamental constitutional principle. And, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that is, sort of where it came from and why it's especially relevant today. Yeah, that's a great question. So the short answer is the non-delegation doctrine for a long time um, has been kind of lurking in the background of constitutional law. So there were two cases in the New Deal era in the same year in which the court struck down congressional statutes on the ground that they delegated too much power with too little guidance to the president. But since then and before then, the court has never struck down a statute on non-delegation grounds. And so it's this constitutional principle that is um, really 
more noticeable for its absence than for its presence. But the principle itself, I think, speaks to a deep anxiety that a lot of people have when it comes to the modern administrative state at the federal level. I think there's this notion that there's something anathema to the Constitution in the notion of creating agencies that might wield government authority. And, you know, at the flattest, it kind of breaks down to this, like, well, the Constitution has three branches. It doesn't talk about agencies. Therefore, I don't know, these agencies, I'm pretty, pretty skeptical. Um, but I think the reason that it matters a lot is because all of modern American governance is built on delegations. Congress vests in executive branch actors the authority to do X, Y, or Z. And that's the backbone of our environmental regulation, of our food and drug regulation, of our copyright regulation, of, of anything that you might imagine under the sun, it arises because of a delegation. And those delegations are often quite broad. So if your goal was to kneecap the modern American state, then the tool you might reach for would be the non-delegation doctrine, because then you can, you can potentially kind of rip the heart out of those delegations and make it very difficult for the federal government to do much of anything. I mean, at bottom, the practice, I think, um, rests on the simple pragmatic that even in the best of times, the process by which legislation, legislative action takes place makes it hard for it to anticipate um, and then incorporate into its legislation all, every instance of the difficulties or problems um, that its uh, regulatory structure uh, might have to confront, right? So if, you, if you're not quite sure what the right parts per million emission standard is for exhaust to promote public health, um, maybe you shouldn't put a number in the statute and instead you say to the EPA, look, um, according to the following quite broad um, uh, 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 grant of discretion, we want you guys to decide what the right parts per million standard is. And maybe that varies by region, maybe that varies by industry, maybe uh, you take um, cost into considerations in some instances, maybe you don't in other instances, right? Like the, 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 the challenges of figuring out the best way to handle complicated, fast-moving, often unanticipated um, realities of, of like running a society, uh, at least in some instances and, and in a great many instances today, um, has been tackled by conveying this kind of regulatory discretion to, to agencies, like Nick said. Mm. Well, so I, mean, I, I guess I, I understand the sort of pragmatic attractiveness of the non-delegation doctrine to people who might have ideological objections to the administrative state. But as I understand it, the sort of constitutional argument is based in something else. And, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of what the sort of theoretical basis for thinking that the non-delegation doctrine isn't just a sort of pragmatic tool for breaking down the administrative state, but something that's kind of constitutionally commanded in some sense. Yeah, I'll take, I'll start, start here, because I think actually the way that the non-delegation doctrine has come to be understood as grounded in originalism is actually a fairly late development. So I think you can really understand the rise of the non-delegation doctrine in 2020 by rolling the tape back to the 1950s and the 60s when a lot of progressive civil rights lawyers were kind of bringing hard-edged challenges to 
to state and federal government. They were using the courts to try to advance the cause of civil rights, to try to push for stronger environmental protections. The folk who were kind of on the outside, you know, rattling the cage of the executive government were those who were sort of on the side of truth and light and justice. And I think that created some real skepticism among the left of federal administrative agencies, that they were the inculcators of interest group interests. They weren't actually looking out for the little guy. Um, and I think that that dovetailed really neatly with, uh, with a conservative skepticism of administrative governance. And together, the people on the left and the right sort of embraced a kind of skepticism about agencies that ended up leading them to, to embrace theories that kind of pushed back, at least on the margins, on the centralization of authority. Over time, as the conservative legal movement really gained steam, um, the notion that the non-delegation doctrine might be a device that they could use to you know, trim this bloated state that they saw really came to be attractive. And at the same time, originalism came into vogue. And about the time originalism came into vogue, you started seeing papers starting to get written about the way that the non-delegation doctrine had its roots in the founding era. Um, and, and that's the development that, that, that we're kind of pushing back against in our paper I'll say that it's it's a recent development. That actually, if you if you go back, there's not much written before before 2000 about like the non-delegation doctrine stretching back to the beginning. And what there is is pretty thin. The more more sustained sort of grounding in this founding movement has happened in in, in really the past two decades. Following up on that, I, I think that uh, kind of going back to your initial framing, Brian um, of sort of what the, the legal argument, what the legal moves are that this broader instinct plugs into, um, in an interesting way, is itself actually grounded more or less explicitly on its own kind of pragmatics in, in the following way. Um, the, the tools that are available, and Nick's already spoken to it a, a bit ago, at least in the first instance in the Constitution, um, uh, is the Constitution's division of governance authority, of apparently all governance authority within the federal government, between three branches, Article One, Article Two, Article Three, uh, Congress, the President, and the Judiciary. And um, one way to think about the implications of that um, is to look at the text ask what the text authorizes, and then leave it there. And if, if that's what you do, it's not clear that the text itself, and indeed I think others have made pretty powerful, and I think the Nick's in my mind pretty persuasive arguments that the text doesn't support a non-delegation doctrine. It's not clear that you can get to a non-delegation doctrine on the face of the text itself, right? So Article 1 says that all legislative powers granted are vested in Congress. Article 2 says executive power is vested in the president, and judicial power is vested by Article 3. And there's nothing in there. There is an omission. It's almost like dormant commerce clause-esque structurally. There's nothing in there about delegation or not. That I possess a power um, in and of itself says nothing about whether I can authorize someone else to do that for me. And in the ordinary course, we delegate authorities to other people all the time. And the same thing was true over a very long arc of time um, in Anglo-American tradition, right? So if you think about like, what are the moves that are available for this sort of instinct uh, and overlapping coalition that Nick is describing to, to make in a legal sense, grounding it in the text of the constitution, from the get-go, and depending as I suppose on your, on your theory of, of implicit restrictions and of constitutional interpretation, 
there's not an obvious hook to hang it on, dot, 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 except for like the, the argument from instinct and logic and uh, practicalities and pragmatics, more or less like this, right? We know they cared about the separation of powers. Look, they separated them. If the day after they started the machine running, you could then just reconsolidate them all just by delegation, that seems to undercut the purpose of the Constitution, right? And I, and I think that like to, to understand the, and there's obviously a lot to say both further about that and then very much in response to that, but I think that thinking about that, right, the, 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 the basically values or norms-oriented move to go from um, a text that doesn't include the restriction where it divides the powers up, there's no restriction on delegation that's expressed in the text, to saying, uh, but yet we must read it as restricting delegation to some extent, because otherwise, what was the point of dividing it, right? Like uh, you would just be able to recreate sort of centralized tyranny by legislative act. Th that's the sort of like, we don't like this outcome. The founders wouldn't like this outcome. Therefore, we should infer a restriction on the production of that outcome in the text that doesn't say it. That, mm. it yeah. Mm. Well, so, I mean, if I were to ask someone who was a believer in the legitimacy of the non-delegation doctrine from an originalist perspective, what the sort of strongest arguments in favor of that requirement are, what do you think they would say? I mean, would they point primarily to this kind of separation of powers, kind of more abstract concern, or is there more to it than that? I... I, I I believe the answer to that question is that they would point primarily to this separation of powers concern. And it's important to separate two things in thinking about this. There's no question, indeed it was maybe the most, well, certainly one of the most salient themes of the founding generation, the American founding generation's discussions around the politics of constitutionalism. There's no question that the separation of powers was critically important to them. Um, that they thought of it as being one way, perhaps among many, in which you could uh, reduce the chance of, of of a tyrannizing government. Um, and so you can find lots of discussions of that point, uh, uh, both by the founders themselves and certainly in some of the texts that they rely on, probably most famously Montesquieu, a French commentator, but um, a great many other contemporary commentators also made those sorts of comments. And so the move is to say, look how much they cared about the consolidation of power. Look at all these instances where they talked about separating power being important. And then let's point to a few places where a kind of a policy-based criticism or skepticism about some particular delegation is made and infer from that that of course there was a background understanding that legislative power couldn't be delegated um, at least once vested in the way that the constitution would vest it. And so I, I think it is grounded very much in um, the real, and I wanna emphasize it's real, but the, the real fact that the founding generation was concerned with the separation of powers and said a whole lot about it at length and with intensity and with, um, uh, you know, with, with, with rhetorical flair often. And sort of to point at that language about the separation of powers and say, how could you possibly allow what they're saying is bad to be recreated by delegation? Does that sound fair, Nick? Yeah, I think that sounds fair. I think what I would, I would add to it is is not only this language of separation of powers, but then also the, the fact that during the early parts of the American sort of experiment, there was actually relatively little of the kind of prescriptive regulation that we take for granted today at the federal level. And that had something more to do with 
the relatively um, with with the state of uh, the technology with the needs of the federal government, with the role that it was, you know, purported to play by the folk who set it up. And so you kind of put all that together and you can say, look, there was a really small state back then. They talked about separating powers, like surely delegations were bad. Therefore, they must all have agreed that delegations were impermissible. What I think that the folk who've done this work on the originalist side have tended to miss though is that you really want to separate out the pragmatic objections to delegation, which do come up in the early, you know, reports from the annals of Congress, from the hard-edged constitutional objection. And a fair reading of the of the history suggests that that the founders would probably have been pretty confused as a group about the claim that you couldn't delegate legislative powers. Um, in fact, legislative powers were delegated all the time back in the late 1800s. Uh, the states had just delegated a bunch of powers to the Confederation Congress, for example, under the Articles of Confederation, right? Like that was a delegation of legislative power. It was understood as a delegation of legislative power, and it was not thought for a moment to be unconstitutional. And in fact, even the very first Congress is walking around like setting up territorial governments where they're headed up by a governor and three judges, and they're given the entire authority to craft whole new codes of conduct, both criminal and civil, for the territories in a way that would have sort of strikes us as, as an enormous delegation of legislative power, which, but which occasioned no remark at the time on constitutional grounds. And that's because the founders were just, they were worried about a different, different set of concerns than we're worried about today. They're not, they weren't worried, not right out of the gate with the consolidation of authority in the king. And partly, although that was a kind of a background concern at times, what they were mainly worried about was the kind of legislative tyranny that had dominated in the state houses in the 1780s. The founding generation was really worried that the Congress would be too active, too prone to um, control by the masses. And, and because that's the concern you have in the forefront of your mind, the last thing you worry about is Congress ceding too much authority. That's not really in the cards. Congress is very active. It's always there. It's always doing stuff. And it's over the course of the 1790s that you start to see the intellectual machinery that might undergird a non-delegation doctrine start to get put into place, most, most notably by James Madison. But what's, what's noticeable about it is just how, how tentative these references to something like a non-delegation are, at least initially, and how even over time, they don't really seem to be taken as part of the furniture for the vast majority of members of Congress. And in the meantime, Congress is passing all sorts of statutes that delegate wide authority. And so I think it's very difficult if you actually go back and look at the practice to think that this principle that you can maybe extract if you squint at the Constitution and think about the separation of powers and then infer that, that enlightened people must have had this view, that you can maybe find it there if you, if you do that kind of work. It just doesn't show up in the historical sources. And those mm -hmm. sources are super rich. I mean, like there are tens of thousands of pages of deep, cogent constitutional debate. I mean, like, these guys were all over the Constitution, and they invoked it all the bloody time. I mean, like, they were arguing about its meaning right out of the gate. If there was a non-delegation doctrine at the founding, they would have been screaming about it. Because, it, you know, the, the bitterness of, of partisan politics back then, they thought the other side, the other team, was out to destroy this new country, right? So, so the very fact that the non-delegation doctrine doesn't even really show up in the historical record, not to any great extent, in the first decade of the of the republic is 
is pretty enormous strike against it as being something that was widely understood at the founding. Mm. Well, so in the paper, you also had a really, I found interesting discussion of sort of the concept of separation of powers and what it meant to distinguish between the different branches of government, uh, at least kind of in a conceptual sense at the time of the founding. Um, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and why you think that undercuts the, the idea that the non-delegation doctrine is a constitutional principle. Part of the story has to do with an effort to load more into the definition of legislative and for that matter of executive power than the founders or the 18th century Anglo-American legal world um, would have understood to be contained in it. Let me step back and sort of and, and, and set the framework. Partly the framework just isn't that complicated, right? There is a sketch of the three powers that feed into the possession of, quote, complete governance authority or, quote, perfect governance authority. So the idea was that if a given government didn't have both legislative authority in the sense of the power to issue authoritative instructions and also executive authority, with respect to the instructions that it issued, that it was an imperfect or partial or non-complete government. It couldn't carry through on the intentions that it formulated. So how does all this relate to, to your question? It relates to your question in the following way. The actual definition of legislative power and executive power in the constitutional sense was extremely simple. I mean, almost embarrassingly simple. Legislative power was simply the power to issue uh, authoritative instructions. Executive power was simply the power to execute uh, those instructions and law more generally, whatever its source. And the confusion that um, gets introduced by modern non-delegation theories is to miss this, again, really simplistic structure and try to construct ways in which legislative authority refers to the kind of things that the Congress usually does. Executive authority refers to the range of subject matters that the president usually takes care of and just complicate things by trying to add either subject matter designations or particular procedural requirements um, uh, to the definition of these powers. And as regards the non-delegation doctrine, the bite here comes with the definition of legislative authority. Um, you know, the, the Gorsuch dissent in the Gundy case involving a challenge to the sex offender registration statute is sort of classic in suggesting that legislative authority um, meant the ability to issue specific rules of conduct governing private individuals. And so instead of just a general open-ended description of a form of authority that let you sort of say stuff that then had to happen, there's lots of ways in which something um, has to conform with a very specific definition before it can constitute an exercise of the legislative power. Why is that important? It's important because they knew, of course, that all the time Congress and legislatures generally were issuing instructions to uh, the executives and telling them to do things. And they also knew that some of those instructions uh, required uh, the, uh, the adoption of rules. And so in order to explain that away, non-delegation theorists suggest that actually 
it's only legislative authority, among other things, if it affects the rights of private individuals and if it ticks off other sort of characteristic aspects of what it means to legislate. And that's how we explain that what the executive was doing in these instances where it was promulgating what looks like rules wasn't really exercising legislative authority. And so there's basically a desire to create some distinction between legislative power as requiring some element of generality and executive power as requiring some element of specificity. And on that basis to sort of maybe acknowledge that there's a spectrum um, uh, uh, along which any given instruction to the executive might code more legislative or more executive, but really get wound up with trying to like parse out these frankly made up definitions of legislative power in a way that gerrymanders um, obvious rule grant, uh, rulemaking authority uh, out of counting for the purpose of um, uh, instances of delegation from the founding. Mm. I mean, it almost sounds like you're saying that the sort of originalist position on or kind of in favor of the non-delegation problem has a kind of like no true Scotsman type problem. For sure. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And then that's, I mean, that's been one of the, one of the, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that jumped out to us um, in working through the materials both before and after um, the constitution was ratified was just how run of the mill it was for rulemaking authority to be delegated to executive branches by parliament, by the states, by states with constitutions that look like the modern constitution, by states without constitutions that look like the modern constitution, um, by the Continental Congress. Uh, I mean, just over and over and over again, you see these legislators dealing with complex subjects by handing off really broad rulemaking authority to either committees, individuals, or administrative agencies, sometimes to other governance units entirely. And it was just an embedded, like, it was invisible to them. It was an embedded way of doing the business of governance. And, you know, it just seemed to us in talking these things through before we, and, and really Nick t t has, done, has done this work um, in an extraordinarily detailed way, tackled the, um, the, the early Republic stuff. It just seemed implausible that all of a sudden this embedded way of running a railroad would vanish just because we had a new constitution. If they were delegating rulemaking authority in all these ways before the constitution was enacted, um, like what, it would be weird and it's possible, but it would be strange for that to have changed after the constitution was, um, was enacted. And that brings us back to the no true Scotsman point that you're making. The response to this, um, both the response to our paper and the papers to which we were responding, the books to which we're responding, some of them acknowledge or recognize some of these delegations, but there's always an explanation for why, oh, this delegation doesn't count. And, and it, there is a, right, argumentatively, it's probably one of the most frustrating, sometimes humorously, sometimes less so, <laughs> for both of us is like there's always an explanation for why this this delegation doesn't count. Yeah, I, I I'll I'll only add. I mean, it is our deep frustration. You know, like you can go back and you can say, look, nobody said that there was a, there, nobody ever mentioned the non-delegation doctrine, and the only times that they kind of did, they always lost. Like, and people were baffled by the claim. You can go back and show like there were dozens and dozens of things that looked like delegations, and yet. Somebody says, well, you can't prove that there was no non-delegation doctrine because nobody said that this doctrine, which didn't exist, existed only to have them decisively contradicted in the historical record. And that's true. They also did not decisively in the historical record 
reject the existence of unicorns, but I'm pretty sure that it wasn't a thing then either. And that's true for the non-delegation doctrine as well. And, and, And the historical evidence here really could not be more overwhelming. And look, I mean, I'll be totally candid too. There is no way to run an effective government if you place judicially managed, place judicial controls, strong judicial controls on delegations. And if you want any proof of that, just look at the authorities that governors across the country are being forced to exercise to respond to COVID-19. These are authorities that have been on the books in every state across the country. They, they give vast powers to respond. They're temporary. They're not permanent alienations of state legislative authority. But if there is anything like a non-delegation doctrine that exists in the federal constitution, and you know by extension probably exists too in many of the state constitutions, almost all the authorities that have been invoked would be unconstitutional. And look, any theory of government that leads you to the conclusion that governors and the president would basically be incapacitated from responding to a fast moving crisis is probably not a, a principle of, of, of any kind of durability, of any sense, uh, and it probably wasn't a principle at the founding. And in Nick, fact, there is just Nick, no evidence Nick, it was. Nick, you're forgetting the emergency exception to the non-delegation doctrine. There's an emergency exception, and that's in the Constitution <laughs> where? I mean, this is the thing is, you know, we can point to these, and then there's always, always some kind of response. And you think to yourself, like, maybe there's a simpler explanation. Maybe the thing you're wedded to, for reasons of, of current political expedience, Maybe it didn't exist. And, and if you put those reasons of political expedience aside and you just look at the historical record, I honestly do not think the question is close. I don't even think it's hard. It's like overwhelmingly the case that Congress went about delegating stuff and never, almost never raised a peep about it. Mm. So anyway, I'll get off my high horse on this. <laughs> well, I have to say like reading the paper, I kept on thinking, you know, like, these are not the delegations you're looking for, you know? <laughs> right? But I mean, so Nick, I, I mean, I wonder if, you know, you could just, and there's the paper's so rich and includes so many examples, but I wonder if you could just touch on like one or two that you think are particularly telling in terms of illustrating the point that you're making about the sort of unproblematic nature of delegation during, you know, in the early American Republic in the early Congress. Sure. So here, here are a couple. So, um, so one of the most urgent questions for the first Congress is to try to figure out how to regulate the relationships with the trans Appalachian Indians out in the West, right? So, so they have a ton of settlers that are kind of pushing boundaries, pushing out West. Um, the Washington administration is really worried that they're gonna embroil the new country into wars. It basically wants to stop the Daniel Boones of the world from, from, from crossing into areas where they shouldn't. It's trying to you know, basically control the relationship with the, with the Native Americans. And in order to effectuate that, Washington turns to Congress and says, hey, could you give me the authority to regulate trade with, Indian, with, with Indians? Um, and Congress says, sure. And so it adopts a law that says that, the, that, that nobody can trade with Indians unless they have a license. And they can be granted a license only subject to the rules that the president shall enact. So basically said, hey, president, you get to make whatever rules you want governing the Indian trade. You can set whatever conditions on licenses you want. Um, and that is no problem under the Constitution. And the originalists say, well, no, no, no. Indians were like another country. It was like an, a foreign relations uh, thing. 
but that's not true. Actually, there were a lot of Native Americans that whose tribes were located within what you might think of as the 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 within the jurisdiction of the United States, and trade with them was regulated too. These were laws that applied to the private conduct of individuals. It regulated their ability to buy and sell goods with a particular class of individuals. And no one made a peep about the non-delegation doctrine. So there's one. Another one is, I mentioned it earlier, this delegation to the Northwest Territory to make any rules of conduct, civil or criminal, whatever they wanted to. And at the time, it was understood that the governor uh, and the judges of the Northwest Territory were being given something like dictatorial power. And you did have people objecting, not on constitutional terms, but in policy terms, to that kind of delegation of power. But it was a a delegation from a Congress that was super worried about what state legislatures had been doing in the 1780s and didn't want any of that kind of populist brouhaha in the Northwest Territory. And so they they gave basically created this, this mini dictatorship. And again, no one said boo about the non-delegation doctrine. And so the originalists say, well, no, no, that's about territory about territories. And so it has nothing to do with the non-delegation doctrine. But but why? Right? The Constitution doesn't doesn't carve the non-delegation doctrine in that way. There, there's in fact nothing in the constitution to say, well, these kinds of delegations are okay and those aren't. You're just making it up. There's also a delegation to create new patent laws, right? These could not more squarely be the regulation of private conduct in as much as granting someone a patent tells everybody else in the world, stop making anything that looks and acts like this patented object. And the rules governing patents were given to a set of three cabinet officers to just make up however they saw fit. So these open-ended, vast delegations in a wide array of domains, if they raise non-delegation concerns, you should have seen somebody complaining about it at the time. And there is literally not a hint of objection to any of them in the historical record. I think that, that, that's one of the most striking things about all of this across this entire sweep of time is how often they were, and Nick's already said this, but it's worth repeating, how often both before the Constitution was ratified and after the Constitution was ratified, in every institutional context in which they were debating uh, policy decisions, governance decisions, how often they lodged claims in a legal constitutional uh, register, right? Whether it was in the small c Constitution in the British sense, the specific Constitution of the state, the Articles of Confederation, uh, once the Constitution was ratified, the, the Constitution itself, the state constitutions, they reached for constitutional arguments like it's almost, ridiculous they, it's they, ridiculous they it i mean time, including the silly ones yeah and, completely nutty ones like i'm sorry we can't give that funding to glass manufacturers because you know some whatever cockamamie theory somebody had at the time i mean these were it was all over the place so if there was a whiff of this in the air as a legal doctrine that would restrain the capacity in some circumstances of a legislature to convey rulemaking. Like, you'd be seeing it in lots of places. And I mean, again, as, as Nick's work has shown, I mean, it is. it appears, well, not at all, uh, effectively in the first um, Congress, zero, right? Like zero times is there a- Zero bill? times, yeah. yeah. And then when it finally starts to emerge, um, as you, you know, in the, in the second Congress and as you head into the later part of the 1790s, it's always in the minority and people respond to it by basically uh, 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 being befuddled, sort of saying, well, how, that doesn't make any, this is like, this means that everything we've been doing so far has been unconstitutional and, and, and the objections lose. And that's the thing. The objections are a tiny minority and they lose and they lose and they lose. And, you know, James Madison was a great 
um, thinker and an extraordinary statesman. Um, and he just, he was, he was, he was not an entirely um, reliable narrator in his legal claims about the constitution when he was serving as a representative um, in, in the midst of, you know, high intensity partisan debates. Mm-hmm. Well, so there've been a lot of responses to the paper already, even though it hasn't even been published yet. I mean, I wonder if just briefly you could reflect on some of those and kind of uh, like mention any responses you thought were particularly interesting or that, you know, that you're thinking about responding to in the future. Yeah. So I'll say that, that we did really apparently kick up a hornet's nest. And I think that's for two big reasons. I think one, the issue is salient because of the Supreme Court's decision in Gundy um, and the signaling that there might now be a working majority of five members of the Supreme Court to, to reinvigorate the non-delegation doctrine. Um, so I think it had kind of a news hook at the time that it came out. Um, the second reason is because I think if you look at the, the sort of um, what you might think of as the political goals of the conservative legal movement at its core is an effort to restrain the power of the national state. Um, and whether that arises out of a kind of libertarianism or a kind of arch federalism, um, you know, whatever the case may be, this is core part of what it means to be a member of good standing in the conservative legal movement. And if you are a member of in good standing in the conservative legal movement, the mode of principle of, of constitutional argumentation to which you owe fealty as a, as a condition of participation is some version of originalism, which means you really ought to care about the history. And so for Julian and I, you know, neither of whom is considers himself an originalist and neither of whom is sort of a, a proponent of this particular political movement, kind of walk into the room and say, your, histor- your historical claims suck. I mean, they're just awful. I think it strikes at the core of both a political movement and a, a commitment, a political commitment to a particular mode of interpretation. Because if you're committed to that mode of interpretation, and it implies that the thing that you care about most, the tool that you could use best to achieve your political goals, isn't available, like there's a deep tension there. It means that actually, you've either got to change your, your constitutional theory to suit your political goals, or you've got to change your political goals. And I think that's why it has struck su- as such a, such a nerve. In terms of responses, there are a number of responses. We're likely to compile our responses in writing at some point. Um, I will say, I don't think they lay a glove on us. Um, most of them do this kind of special pleading for none of these delegations count, or actually just misread the, the thrust of debates that seem to cut decisively to us in the opposite direction, or frankly, just cherry pick evidence to support a view that these people had before they began. Um, And I I hate to be quite so blunt about it because I do think many of these people are operating in good faith, they're trying their best. But I think if you are part of the originalist legal community, the people that you talk to about your claims are largely originalists. And they kind of are open, they're receptive to the argument that that originalism implies something that aligns roughly with the the goals of the political movement. Um, and, And when that's, the case, nobody is calling your bullshit and nobody's saying, hey, have you, have you really kicked the tires on that? Did you think about this alternative reading? Have you really gone through and examined whether all of these delegations can be squared so easily with the original understanding? Um, I think when you have that kind of hermetically sealed 
epistemic community, it can be hard to, to notice that, that you've gone very far astray. And I think that's what's happened to the originalists. And, and, and I don't think any of the responses suggest to me that, that they've somehow, um, you know, decisively found the evidence that they've been hunting for unsuccessfully for two decades. Um, <clears throat> well, so really briefly, in closing, Nick, that was really helpful. And, and, and I wonder kind of uh, in a kind of a broader sense, like why is it that something that seems in some ways so esoteric as the, con the concept of the non-delegation doctrine has seemed to become so foundational in kind of originalist ideology? I mean, like originalism could have picked a lot <laughs> it seems like they could have picked a lot of different potential sort of fun foundational principles as ones mm -hmm. to sort of hang their hat on. Why the non-delegation doctrine? And is there some particular reason that you think it has a particular kind of ideological salience, not just in a pragmatic sense, but also in a more kind of ideological or um, conceptual sense? to the kind of way that originalism conceptualize what we do when we're doing con constitutionalism? I'm not sure I immediately have an answer. Um, and I'm sort of interested in, in well, your thoughts and Nick's thoughts and maybe something interesting will come from me as well. But I, I will respond in the first instance by adding reason for puzzlement about the sheer intensity and rapidity with which responses have come out. I mean, people have come out saying things like very quickly with great, confidence that, gosh, like, take a second, right? Like, take a second and make sure what you're saying is right, man, because you're on record as saying this thing now. And why, why this hornet's nest? It, here's why it's, it's, it's even more puzzling to me. There's a related project and series of papers that's heading toward the book um, that I'm working on to do with the understanding of presidential power and, pre and executive power. And the connections between the concept of executive power and delegation aren't hard to, aren't hard to see, but I, I would say that as embedded as an article of faith among originalists um, as the non-delegation doctrine was the view that the executive power in Article 2 of the Constitution, at least to some extent, and perhaps we argue about the margins, but at least to some extent, conveys a bundle of substantive authorities and conveys something like the residual authorities uh, that a crown or governor um, uh, would have had before the Constitution, um, once the rest have been reallocated to Congress, right? And lots of really important things flow from this around um, the president's ability to ignore what Congress says in foreign affairs, um, in, in emergency situations, in, um, uh, in, in military affairs. And, and, you know, if you think about, I mean, essentially the entire war on terror, most of the front page stories had somewhere lurking this so-called vesting clause thesis that relies on a claim that the executive power is some thick bundle of foreign affairs national security emergency authorities, right? That turns out to have been like about as wrong a claim as it's possible to be. Um, from in my perspective, like the, that claim has been routed by the, by the research in the papers and the work that I've done. And there's just not a, a plausible basis to make that claim anymore. There has been radio silence on that uh, from uh, essentially everybody uh, who's written in the area um, and in radio silence more generally from the larger community of originalists with one, with one significant exception and very thoughtful exception. Um, and for me, there's sort of been a, a, an Alice in Wonderland or, or, you know, through the looking glass um, 
feeling of like having sat around for two years waiting for somebody to point out something that was wrong about the claims about the executive power. Um, and just thinking, well, people want to be careful. They're going to say something about it someday. Um, and that never, at least not yet, ever coming. And then comparing it to this, where like, the, I mean, in one case, like almost literally the week after we posted this, there's like a long response um, challenging the claims in minute detail. And I don't, I don't know how to account for that. Why would it be that refuting like Bush era claims about, you know, the imperial executive, um, and there's a lot of national security conservatives out there would elicit or would, would prompt uh, silence and, and refuting as I think we've decisively done here, um, you know, equally embedded to conservative claims about non-delegation doctrine would, would, would elicit such a, such a quick and too quick, too hurried, um, almost frantic reaction. Um, I, I, I'm puzzled. I, I don't, I, I, what do you think, Nick? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it probably has to do with sort of the, the I mean, you know, I, I, I think there is no way to understand the rise of the non-delegation doctrine in 2020 except as the fruit of a long-term uh, ideological commitment to trying to curb the authority of the federal administrative state. I think it is a political movement. I don't think there is anything wrong with having a political goal. Um, and I, I think that sometimes originalists try to claim that their principles are strictly neutral and therefore they're, all they're doing is just telling you what it was like back in 1789. But as you note, there are a whole lot of constitutional principles you could have drawn on from 1789 that would have actually, that, that actually existed in 1789 that you might be able to call on. And why are they pushing on this? Well, because they want to kneecap the, the state. Like they really truly want to make it work less. They want it to do less. And that's a perfectly fine set of commitments. But when you threaten that political movement, I think, I think folk react because they sense that the goals that they've long been shooting for and that are now within their reach because of uh, what I think is likely to be an ephemeral majority at the Supreme Court, um, I think that that is a, a bigger threat. I think the other part of originalism, and I, I don't know why they haven't responded to Julian's work on executive power, but another thing about if you're an originalist, like you're committed to the view that there was a lapsed state. There was a state of perfection at the moment of 1789 and that we have since strayed from it. And so the more radical the claim is, the more it sort of gets the juices flowing, the more it seems like, well, if we're going to be rock ribbed about this, we're going to have to, we're going to have to break some eggs. And if that means that the modern American state can't function like it has, well, so be it. That's just what, that's just what the originalist uh, commitment entails. And, you know, like, I don't think that's an attractive method for, for constitutional interpretation, one that invites huge evulsive changes because of some commitment to a perceived uh, interpretation of the Constitution from more than 200 years ago. But, but I think that kind of radicalism is actually part and parcel of what makes originalism appealing to so many people and why I think the Supreme Court's sort of flirtation with the non-delegation doctrine is so disturbing to me and maybe why it's so appealing to team originalists. Mm. Well, Nick, Julian, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And this is really a fantastic conversation. Um, I love reading your paper. I really hope listeners will check it out because it is chock-a-block with so many fascinating and honestly very amusing examples we didn't have a chance to talk about. Um, but, you know, I really feel like I learned even more talking to the both of you together. So thanks, thanks a lot. Thanks for having us on the show, Brian. It's been, it's been an honor. I have, 
It's my first time and I'm very pleased. This is terrific. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's great to have the chance to talk this through with you. Thank you for having us. The men who formed the United States wrote out the rules they thought we should live by. And we call what they wrote the Constitution. Little girls and little boys all want to understand and read the Constitution. It's the basis of the laws of our land.